So glad that you're here this morning. Now I sound really loud. Um, Great. Yeah, so we, we do need volunteers. So I am glad you're here. My name is Kyle. I'm the pastor here of Fellowship Church. This is our Pellissippi campus. If you're looking around and saying, wow, there's a bunch of people I don't know, or I'm new here and I want to get connected, welcome to the club, because we are only four weeks old, maybe five weeks old. It's been so long, I don't even know. Uh, but we would love, if you're a guest, to take that connection card back to the Gather, Grow, Serve table, which today is just a table, but typically these banners right here are behind them. Take them back there so we get to know you. We do want to see you get connected here at church. Now, if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, I'm going to give you a quick recap of what we're up to. We're, we've launched a new campus of Fellowship Church out here in the Pellissippi area, and we started with saying, what is the mission of Jesus' church? Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church, and so we talked about what does that mean for us to be a part of a church where Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church. We talked about the ecclesia. We talked about how the church is not the building. We talked about how the church is the people. It's a group of people that are called out together for our sole purpose of reaching their community with the gospel. So we went through that, and then we said, okay, if that's what Jesus said the church is, then we have to say, okay, what are we? And we look and we say, all right, this is the church we want to become. This is our mission statement, that we are a church woven into our community, striving to live authentic lives and longing to remove barriers that keep people from life with Jesus. So we say that's the church we want to become. And so we talked about what does that mean for us to be woven into the community. We talked about how Paul, at the church of Thessalonica, he fell in love with his community. He didn't just bring them the good news of Jesus, but he brought them himself. Remember, we talked about what does it look like for us to love our neighbors like a mother would love her child. And then we said from that, okay, that's what it means for us to be woven into our community. Then we say, how do we live authentic lives? What does it look like for us to live authentic lives? So we talked about how in order for us to be authentic, we need to be honest about our past story. We need to be honest about what God is doing in our life now. Not so that we point people at us, but that we point people toward Jesus. And if we live an authentic life, and we show the community, look, we're in just as bad a shape as you are. When they come in here and say, but you don't know who I'm like, we can say, we know exactly what you're like. Because we have been going through this journey together. And then all of a sudden, we begin to knock down barriers. Because all of the things that pe keep people from life with Christ begin to topple. We become a church that's living authentically and being honest about who we are. So then the next question we ask ourselves is, okay, if that's what Jesus said the church is, and we go from there and we say, okay, that is what we want to become, how do we get there? How do we get to the place where we are a church that's woven into our community, that's living authentically, and that's taking down the barriers to keep people from life with Christ? And we do it here at Fellowship in three different ways. We do it by grow gathering, growing, and serving. You'll hear these words all the time, gather, grow, serve. As a matter of fact, these next couple of weeks, we're just going to highlight those three words. What does it mean for us as a church to gather together? What does it mean for us as a church to grow together? And then what does it mean for us as a church to serve together? And that's what we're going to focus on these next couple of weeks, gathering, growing, and serving. Now, the gathering part is what we do on typically on a Sunday morning, and typically we do it here. Now, you'll find out over the next couple of weeks, we won't always be meeting here. The goal is, is that our gathering may be somewhere else. It may be somewhere else in the community. We may split up and have our Sunday morning gathering somewhere else. We may find out that the school won't let us meet here anymore, so our gathering is going to be somewhere else. Maybe your backyard, if you've got a big backyard. We might have to do that. I'm not kidding. We might have to do that. Um, 
But then we go from there and say, okay, that's what it means for us to gather as a church. What does it mean for us to grow as a church? How do we strengthen ourselves in Christ? How do we hold each other accountable? How do we build each other up? And we do that in multiple ways here, but the biggest way we do that is our life groups. Life groups are groups of families in different communities throughout the Pellissippi Corridor that meet regularly outside of Sunday morning. These are groups that meet in their own homes, in their own communities, and that's where we see the vehicle of our discipleship take place. That's where we do life together. That's where we meet together. That's where we encourage each other. That's where we pray for one another. That's where we get involved in community and get to know each other. And so we do that in our life groups, and so next week... We'll actually highlight, like Nick said this morning, we will highlight our life groups. We're going to spend time talking about our life groups. And then after the service, we're going to cut a little bit early. We're going to go into the cafeteria, and we're going to just spend time getting to know who our life group leaders are. We call it a life group test drive. It means that if you are not currently in a life group, in a community that meets regularly throughout the month outside of this gathering, we want to introduce you to who they are. We want to see you get plugged in. And so our test drive is a four-week time frame where you get to go try out a life group. You get to go try out without hurting their feelings if you don't like them. Some of the life groups, uh, they give you food. So we'll tell you which ones those are because you're going to want to hit those first. But we want you to have an opportunity to go visit a life group and say, is this a community that I could see growing with? And then, of course, the last thing is we want to be serving. We want to serve as a community. What does it mean for you and I to serve together as a church in our community? We do that in lots of ways. We do that locally. We have a group that serves the Carnes High School. We have a group that's involved in Tennessee Achieves. We had a group that went over and did a service project at Ben Ashley uh, Retirement Home. Right now, we're forming a group that says, how can we serve globally? How can we branch outside of Knoxville? How can we serve globally? And so we're going to work as a church to figure out where is it that we can serve. Now this morning, we're going to focus on the gathering. This morning, we're going to focus on what we do right here regularly on Sunday morning. Why do we do what we do uh, together regularly here at Carnes High School? But I want to start by telling you a story. And I realized, I was just reminded the other day that I shouldn't tell stories because every story ends up with something being lit on fire or everything that I tell ends up me losing a bunch of money on Facebook. This one's not so bad. But when I was in high school, I was a senior in high school and I played soccer. And I was looking to go to play soccer in college. That was my goal. I was a pretty good player, and I went to a couple all-star games that allowed me to meet with scouts, and I was kind of puffed up and prideful. I, I thought I was a pretty good athlete. Now, as I began to visit schools, I realized I was not a D1 student. I was not going to be a D2 player, but I was pretty sure I could play at the Division three level. So I began to look at schools that would work for us, and as a matter of fact, a coach from a local school in Philadelphia came up and said, you know what, if you come to our school to play soccer, if you come to our university to play soccer, you will probably start as a freshman and will help you get through school, financially and educationally, like I was sold. Anywhere where I can play soccer and they're going to help me get out of school, like that's where I'm going. So all throughout the summer, I worked out, I trained, I couldn't believe this, here I am, this high school student going to college, I'm going to start, I'm going to be the man. I started getting really prideful. We started the three-a-days over the summer where I started working out with the team and I realized I can keep up with these guys. So now I went from the player that was prideful and thought I'd be a part of the team to the player that thought, I'm going to carry this team on my shoulders. Like, I am the man. I started hanging out with upperclassmen, which mean I was hanging out with upperclassmen's girlfriends. Like, it was incredible. Three times a day we're working out. I'm loving it. I am the guy. I told my mom, don't worry about me. I'll be fine. I'm going to play on this team. You know where this is going. 
Well, the semester starts and all the other freshmen show up and I don't need to hang out with them because I already have my friends, right? I'm like already with the cool crowd and the big game starts, the first game of our season. Well, lots of people show up because it's the first game of the season and coach gives us this great talk and sure enough, I get called to be on the starting team. I go running out on the field and I'm just like this small, tiny kid compared to all these what I consider giants and I'm like, look at me, a freshman starting on the team. I was the man. Well, we had a great first half, and we were, we were keeping them out of our end. Uh, we were really solid on defense. I was the sweeper. And uh, as a matter of fact, we were playing so well that I was hearing people on the sidelines, like, asking about who's the new guy on the team, which just made my head even bigger. Well, about three minutes into, uh, with three minutes left in the half, the other team gets a corner kick. All right, and so my job as the sweeper is to cover the back post and to not leave that back post until that ball's been cleared out. You soccer players know what I mean. So what happens is I stay on the back post. The goalie's facing the other direction. I need to cover his backside so that ball doesn't come flying in. Because if it comes too quickly, he can't turn to make the save. That's my job. So I got my back on the back post, and this guy makes this unbelievable corner kick. It takes one hop, and the kid volleys it, and it's heading upper 90s. I mean, it is heading toward the goal. Now, I'm the stud, right? I'm the all-star. i got to stop this ball. Well, as the ball is coming through, I stepped away from my post, which was the biggest mistake you can make. This ball is now heading toward the goal, and I'm panicking. What do I do? Like, all the eyes are on me. Well, I don't know if this ball is going out of bounds or it's not going out of bounds, but i got to stop it. So I do like this Wayne Rooney. I'm not. The ball's about this high. I think I'm going to jump up, swing from my back, and kick this ball out into the field. I think, no problem. This is an easy play. Well, as I'm in midair, I realize this ball is going out of bounds. Like, I just need to let it go. I don't need to make a play. It's going out of bounds. The problem was is I was already in motion. And as I'm swinging through, I realize now I better connect with this ball really hard to get this ball out of here or I'm in trouble, and I don't. And as my foot comes through, it skips off the side of my foot, and the ball that was supposed to go out of bounds has now been deflected into the upper 90s of the goal. Now, I've been playing soccer since I was five years old. I don't remember ever scoring on my own team before. My freshman year, first game in college, I score an own goal. The goalie comes out, and he's got this snicker on his face. I went from, like, the biggest, most amazing player to the tiniest man in the world, and he comes up, and he puts his arm around me, and he's laughing. He goes, dude, that's not our goal. <laughs> he goes, that's our goal, and he points down the field. That's our goal. We're going that way. And he's laughing, and the stopper, he comes over and says, dude, that's not our goal. And I felt horrible. And for the next couple of weeks, it probably lasted longer than that. Some of them still remind me to this day that that's not our goal. We'd go out on the field, and we'd be ready to play, and they'd say, hey, Kyle, don't forget, we're going that way to remind me. And I think, you know what? Sometimes we need that reminder. We need to be reminded what really is our goal. We need to be reminded what really is the direction that we're heading. And as a church, oftentimes, we get in the habit of thinking that our goal is this gathering. Right? We get in the habit of thinking that the whole reason that we have a church is that we can gather together on Sunday morning. But the truth is, is that the gathering is not the goal. Rather, the gathering is simply a springboard for the other things that we do here at church. We use it as a springboard to launch us into how do we grow and how do we serve. And so this morning, I want to take a few minutes to remind you that the gathering is not the goal. 
The gathering is not what we're doing here. It's good that we gather. It's good that we grow together as a body in Christ. But this isn't the end goal. We use this gathering to remind ourselves what the mission of the church is. Now, in order to do that, we need to go back to the beginning. Remember Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We started there, right? We started at that passage. Well, this morning, we're going to start moving from there to Acts chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles, turn your Bibles open to Acts chapter 2. I'll have it up here on the screen as well, uh, if you'd like it. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one uh, at the Gather, Grow, Serve table um, on the way out. That Bible is a gift to you. We want you to take it. We want you to write in it. We want you to use it, put your name in it. So when you leave it here by accident, we can get it to you. But Acts chapter 2, verse 42 is where we're going to be. But we start back at Matthew chapter 16. We say this, okay, Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, I had a lot of comments and questions like, hey, uh, Kyle, when are we going to see uh, the church stop going through tribulation? When are we going to stop seeing the church being persecuted? Other people ask this question. We see churches all around today that are closing their doors and shutting down. Well, is the church going to die? Well, we could see three things from this statement that Jesus made, and it goes like this. Jesus will have his church. Jesus' church will always be persecuted, but in the end, Jesus' church will prevail. Remember that. Jesus' church will prevail. So we look at this and say, okay, Jesus, you said, on this rock I will build my church. What is he talking about? Is he talking about Fellowship Church that meets in Carnes High School? Is he talking about you and me? Is that, is that what Jesus was talking about 2,000 years ago? Well, in order to answer that question, I want to I kind of get a little bit academic. And when I say I get academic, that warns you that I need you to stay focused for just two minutes. All right? Because when we look at the church that Jesus was talking about, he was talking about two different groups. He was talking about two different churches. All right? The first church is this. It's the universal church. It's the global church. The universal church is made up of all believers, all people who have put their trust and faith in Christ from the time Jesus rose from the grave and ascended to heaven until now. All believers who put your faith and trust in Christ are a part of the universal church. Now, not just here in Knoxville. This is believers all over the globe from that time forward. So, you are a member of the universal church if you've become a Christian, if you've put your trust in Jesus. All right? That's the first church. That's the universal church. This is all believers from Jesus' time on all over the globe. The second church is the local church. All right? The local church is a group of people who have voluntarily gotten together, who are Christians, who have put their faith and trust in Christ, but have worked together as a community church to grow and to be held accountable and to serve. And that's what we would call the local body here at Fellowship. This is a local church. Okay, so we've got the universal church, and then we've got the local church. Now stay with me. That means that we can put all people from Jesus' time on into four different categories. All right, and here are the categories. Category number one is, is that there are people that are not in the universal church, and there are people that are not in the local church. These are folks who have not put their faith in Jesus. These are folks that do not believe that God exists. These are folks that are not Christians. And these folks don't participate in a local church. All right? So that's group number one. Group number two is you are a part of the universal church, but not a part of the local church. That means that you are a Christian. 
you are a Christ follower. You want to live more like Christ. You put your faith and trust in him, but you don't want to participate in your local body. All right? These, these are folks that are Christians. Oftentimes you'll hear people who say they've been burned by the church. They've been hurt by the church. Uh, they didn't like what the local church was doing. And so even though they are Christians, they don't participate in their local community. That's the second group. Now, I would caution you, I have a friend from college who would be in that category. He is a Christian, but he got burned by the church, and so now on Sunday mornings he goes to the bar. He doesn't participate in his local body of believers. I would caution you because there is no example in the New Testament of people like that. If you are part of the universal church, you are also part of the local church. The third group is you are part of the local church only. This is that you really are a Christian, but, oh, I'm sorry, this is that you are not a Christian, that you are not a Christ follower, that you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus, but you participate in your local congregation. This is someone that maybe they've been forced to come to church. Maybe you're here and you were forced to come to church this morning. This is someone that uh, falls in the category of they like the community of church. They want to be a part of their church. It might be cultural, so they come to church uh, because it's part of their culture, but they don't really have a relationship with God through Christ. That's this group. And then the final group is the group that falls into both. You are a member of the universal church. You have put your faith and trust in Christ. And you are involved in your local body of believers. The reason why I bring this up is because there are quite a few folks today who have been burned by the church who have walked away. And they are Christians. And I'm so nervous for a Christian because if you are a part, if you are a Christian and you don't have a local body, you're like a ship that's out in sea with no port, right? When a storm comes and the ship is out in sea with no port, they get tossed back and forth. There's nowhere for them to come home. And so what Jesus was saying is, I will build my church. And the way that he did this was he set up local bodies of believers. He set up a local community church, just like what we do here at Pellissippi. And so the church began to blow up. The church began to grow. Now, as Jesus left in Matthew chapter 28, he gave us some directives of what he wanted from the church. Remember, if we say that the gathering is not the goal, we need to ask ourselves, what is the goal? Well, here, Jesus gives some light to it. When he comes back from the grave, he tells his disciples, meet me in Galilee. And he meets them in a mountaintop in Galilee, and he says this, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth have been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So these are some of the last words that Jesus gives to his disciples. He calls them up on a mountaintop. He says, okay, guys, here's what I want you to do. And he gives them this instruction. Now, when you look at that passage, some of us will say he really told them to do one thing. Some of us will say, well, he told them to do two things. Some of us say, maybe he told them to do three things in this passage. Maybe four things in this passage. Here's what Jesus is telling them. Jesus is telling his disciples, I want you to do one thing. I just want you to do one thing. I want you to make disciples. And then he follows it up by saying, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to go, and we're going to baptize, and we're going to teach. I want you to make disciples, and how do I want you to do that? I want you to go, I want you to baptize, and I want you to teach. See what Jesus is saying to them? These are some of the last words that he says to us. He says to us, I want you to make disciples. Now, oftentimes when we hear that, we think, well, don't we leave the making disciple part up to the pastor? 
Don't we leave the making disciples up to the people who have gone to seminary? And Jesus is taking these guys who have just been walking with him for a few years, and he's saying, I want you now to make disciples. And I want you to do it by first going. We need to be a church that goes. We can't be a church that just says, hey, come see what we do. We need to be a church that goes. And in the process, we need to baptize and teach. But he goes even further than that. Then we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we're almost to Acts 2. Then we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says this. He's meeting with his disciples for the last time. And he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking at him, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So we see Jesus in this last passage say, I want you to go make disciples. That's what I want you to do. I want you to make disciples. And by doing it, I want you to go. I want you to go. I want you to go. Then we're seeing the disciples with the last context with Jesus. And he says, listen, I'm going to go, but I want you to be my witnesses. I want you to go be my witnesses. I want you to go make disciples. I want you to go be my witnesses. And they're constantly hearing this message. Go, go, go. Funny thing is, is Jesus then floats to heaven on a cloud, and we catch all of his disciples gazing into the sky. They had just been told to go, 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 and now what are they doing? They're frozen, staring into the sky. As a matter of fact, an angel had to come down and say, guys, Jesus will be back the same way that he came. But you get the message, right? We're supposed to be a church that goes. We need to be a church that makes disciples. We need to be a church that does this by going, baptizing, and teaching. And then on top of all that, we need to be his witnesses. We need to tell others about Jesus. You see, so all of a sudden now, the gathering isn't the goal. The the, the get-together on the Sunday morning isn't the goal anymore. Instead, the gathering is springboarding us to be making disciples. Now we get to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. So now we've given the background. Here we are. We're now sitting with the church. Here's the church in Acts chapter 2. And these Christians, they begin to tell others about Christ. The church begins to grow. And now we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, what the Christians did together when they gathered. It says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon them, every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So we see four distinct things that take place during the gathering. We see four distinct things. The first thing we see is they dedicate themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, the reason why this is important is, remember, these apostles, these disciples, just a few years ago, they were the fishermen. Just a few years ago, they were the ones just meandering around, not doing any teaching. They were the students. They were the learners. And now what's happened is they've become the teachers in the church. They've become the leaders in the church. You see, the students have become the teachers. The learners have become the teachers. The disciples have now become the disciple makers. And so regularly as they would gather together, they would gather together to study under the disciples. You see, one thing I think we need to remind ourselves is that we've all been called to make disciples. We've all been called to do this. And oftentimes, we get this sense in our heart like we're not ready to do this, we're not prepared to do this, and the truth is, is we're looking at three men who have now been given the job of launching the church. 
You know, in every relationship that you're in, there is a leader and there's a follower. In every relationship you're in, it's a disciple relationship, right? It's a disciple relationship. The question is, is in that relationship, you have to ask yourself two questions. Am I the leader or am I the follower? Am I the teacher? Am I the student? Think about relationships that you have right now. Are you the teacher or the leader in that relationship or are you the follower? Because all relationships go that way. Now, the next question you have to ask yourself is, if you are the leader, if you are the disciple maker in that relationship, are you intentionally leading someone towards something like Christ? See, we can be teachers all we want, but we could be leading somebody to bitterness and to anger and to hatred and to greed. We need to be intentional about leading. I'll give you this example. So Micah and I, my son, uh, we're having devotions. He's seven years old. And we're doing devotions in his bed one night, and we're talking. And when devotions are over, I have like this moment, like I'm going to be the dad of the year, you know. So I begin to talk to him, and I said, you know, Micah, to be a strong, godly man, it takes someone that's able to survive the experiences around him and not to respond the way that the rest of the people want him to respond. A man with a godly, strong heart responds for himself, defines for himself how he's going to respond in any circumstance. So I give him the example. So like you're out in the street playing football and one of the neighbor kids pushes you down and you get hurt. As a godly, strong man, you get to decide how you're going to respond. Are you going to get up and throw a punch? Or are you going to get up and you're going to brush yourself off? Or when your sister is picking on you and driving you toward anger, as a godly man, you get to decide how you want to respond. Then we talked about Star Wars and then he went to bed. I'm like, well, you probably didn't hear a single word that I said. Well, the next morning we get up and we're at the table and I'm, we're uh, getting him ready for breakfast and Christy and I are talking in the kitchen. Our kitchen isn't big enough and the next thing you know, uh, she says something that turns into a confrontation, which then turns something into a fight, which then turns something into this blowout yelling fest, right? I don't know how it happens. It's like 12 seconds we can go from hanging out and doing fine to screaming at each other. And so we're screaming at something that clearly she said that pushed me over the edge. I'm yelling at her. She's yelling back at me. And we realize that our kids are watching this whole thing. And so because we're good parents, we pretend that we've forgiven each other and we hug each other. And I hop in the car and we're on our way to school and the kids are in the back seat and Christy stayed home. So I'm running the kids to school and we're about halfway there. And uh, I don't know what they're doing, but the next thing you know, Micah says, hey, dad. Like, yeah. Remember last night when we were talking about what it looks like to have a godly heart? And I'm like, oh, my word. He remembers. He was listening. I'm like giving myself a gold star. He's like, well, you, uh, you were telling me that if I'm going to be a strong man, I need to protect myself from letting the world decide how I'm responding, and I need to respond for myself. And I'm like, oh, my word, I'm the best dad ever. Like I should have gotten the iPhone out and started recording this. And, and you were saying that if somebody pushes me to the edge, I still get to decide how I want to respond because I'm a godly man. Like, yes, you are, Micah. Yes, you are. And I'm like, you know, I want to put the windows down, driving. He said, hey, Dad. Yeah. So this morning when you started yelling at Mom, was that an example of a weak heart? So what I wanted to do <laughs> is I wanted to reach back and grab the kid by the collar and throw him out the window. But what I did do is I realized something really important. I am discipling my son. I am discipling my son. And my son, in the span of 24 hours, had to decide, am I going to listen to the words that my father says, or am I going to watch the action that my father does? You see, 
in every relationship that we are in, we have an opportunity to be discipling. Regardless of the words that we say, regardless of the actions that we do, we are training our children. You dads, you're sitting here this morning, you are the disciple maker for your children. How are you leading them? How are you leading them? Moms, how are you leading your children to be more like Christ? Because in every relationship, we are either the leader or the follower. And what we see here is the disciples have become the teachers. The disciples have become the leaders. The disciples have become the disciple makers. And in all of our lives, the question we need to ask ourselves is this, who am I discipling to be more like Christ? If Jesus' words were to us, go make disciples, shouldn't we be doing that? They weren't just leading and teaching, but they were spending time in fellowship. They were meeting together regularly. They were meeting together to hold each other accountable. They were meeting together to get to know each other. They were meeting regularly to use their spiritual gifts to lead others to Christ, to make them stronger believers. They were using this time of fellowship. So that's why we eat a lot around here. Because we want to give you a chance to get to know each other. If you're new here this morning, I encourage you to not wait for somebody to come say hi to you. Go up and say hi to somebody else. We're all new here together. But in this gathering, we spend time together in fellowship so that we can build each other up to be more like Christ. They spent time breaking bread. So there's, there's two things that take place here. They spent time eating together, which of course that's why we do what we do. But they also talked about spending time in communion, taking communion. And so Jesus said before he left, listen, this is my bread. It's broken for you. This, this wine represents my blood. It will be spilled out for you. Do this so that you remember me. And so in our gatherings together, we will take communion. And starting in April, we will do it the first, of, the first week of every month. We will take communion together as a church. We'll talk about why we do it. We'll talk about why is it so necessary for us to remember the words that Jesus had that day. And finally, they devoted themselves to prayer, spending time in prayer, spending time in worship. All of these things so that God gets the glory. All of these things, so it's not just a group of people hanging out, but now that we're on mission, and in this, we're giving God the glory. We're worshiping him in time of prayer breaking of bread and fellowship and teaching. That's what we're going to do. 2,000 years later, that's the model we're going to follow. Now, it may look different periodically, but this is what we do in the gathering. This is what we'll do together. So, that's what we do. It still doesn't answer, well, then what's the goal? If the goal isn't the gathering, then what's the goal? Well, we, we keep going in Acts chapter, 40, Acts chapter 2, verse 45. We see this, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. They were caring for each other. They were rallying around each other, and day by day, regularly, and day by day, attending the temple together, together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food in glad and gener with glad and generous hearts. Together. They were together. 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Together. They gather together regularly for these things. And what does it say at the end of it? That they were adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
We see that a lot through the book of Acts. We see that, that, that sentence a lot. In Acts chapter 9, verse 31, we see, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. We saw in Acts chapter 16, verse 5, So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Here's the answer to the question. What is the goal of the church? The goal of the church is right there in Acts chapter 16, verse 5. Two things. That the believers would be strengthened in their faith and that they would increase in numbers. The goal of the church is that we would see more people come to Christ and that we would see people's relationship with Christ strengthened. The goal of the church is to see more Christians and better Christians. The goal of the church is to see more disciples and better disciples. The goal of the church is to make more disciple makers and better disciple makers. The goal of the church is that we would grow together, strengthen our faith, that we would share the gospel with our community so that we'd be making more and better disciples. The goal of the church is multiplication. The goal of the church is to multiply. So in every area of ministry in our church, we need to ask ourselves this question. Who are you discipling to be more like Christ? If you're an usher here this morning, who are you training to do your job? If you're a nursery worker, who are you training to do your job? If you're a Sunday school worker, who are you training to do your job? If you're a life group leader, who are you training to do your job? Because in every area of ministry, the goal is to multiply ourselves. We saw new people today on the stage playing because we need to multiply musicians. I need to do it myself. We need to multiply teachers. I need to teach teachers. In every area of the church, we need to be ready to make more and better disciples for Christ so that we can multiply. Who knows? Maybe God's going to use us because he wants us to be able to take a group of our people and go to Clinton and do this all over again. That we would multiply. Maybe God's calling us to do this so that we would find a group that wants to go to Oak Ridge or Turkey Creek or Farragut. We don't know what God's got planned for us. What we do know is this. The goal is multiplication. The goal is to see more and better disciples. That's the goal for all of us. And we're using the gathering as a springboard to get us there. We're using the gathering to get us there. The gathering is not the goal. The goal is for us to be making more and better disciples. So here's my question for you this morning. The question is this. If in fact, Jesus' words to us is, I want you to go make disciples. And if in fact, Jesus' last words to the disciples were, I want you to be my witnesses. Where in our lives are we doing that? Where in our lives are we doing that? How are you serving in this church right now? And how are you making disciples of others to do what you're doing? Remember, some of you might say, well, I've only been a Christian for a year. Well, that's great because there's lots of people today that have been Christians for six months. you got a six-month lead on them. Yeah, but I've only been a Christian for a month. Well, there's people here that have been a Christian for a week. Our job as disciple-makers is to come alongside of them, is to lead them to be more like Christ. Our goal as the church is for multiplication, that we would make more and better disciples.
So I challenge you this morning, before you leave, I want you to think about this. How are you serving in the church? How are you serving in the body? How are you serving in all of these ways? And then the second question is, is how are you leading someone to Christ? How are you parenting? How are you doing as a husband and a wife? How are you doing as a boyfriend and a girlfriend? Are you leading them to be more like Christ? Because the goal of the church is to be strengthened in our faith and to grow in numbers that we would make more and better disciples. Before you leave today, think about that. Who is somebody that I'm going to take under my wing? Who is somebody that I want to train up to be more like Christ? Who is someone that I want to teach about Jesus? See, we work together as the body, right? There are all these different gifts, and that's why we come together as the body, because we don't have all of them together. You would not want me to lead worship, I promise you. But we use the gifts together as a part of the gathering to springboard us to making more and better disciples. And we're going to do that regularly on Sunday morning in those four areas. So before you leave this morning, I want you to think about that. I'm going to ask the band to come up as I pray for us as we go. God, I pray uh, that we don't lose focus of our mission. God, I pray that we don't lose focus of the goal of your church. God, we know the gathering is not the goal. God, the goal is for more and better disciples. Lord, I just pray in my own life that you help me to lead and to teach, to share Christ. God, that I can help strengthen others around me. Lord, I just pray that we are all challenged, that you put somebody in our hearts right now that you're calling us to be a part of their life. God, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name.